You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, D'Souza, Bigbeard, Willie P., Schmarls, Proctor, Rin Ketzel, Long Knives Logan, G.D. Fraser, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Eli the Cartographer, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Courtney, Clint, David, Matthew, and Ryan. Today's episode is also brought to you by Washington's War, 1779, by Benjamin Lee Huggins. Washington's War, 1779, is an excellent history of the campaign season of the American Revolution in 1779, told through the lens and the correspondence and orders of the Commander-in-Chief, George Washington. 1779 was the first campaign season of the war after France allied with the United States. Washington, working for the first time with a French fleet and army under the Comte d'Estaing, has to flex all his diplomatic, political, and military muscles for his planned attack against the bastion of British power in North America, New York City. Now, I know many of you are wondering right now, wait a second, Matt doesn't do ads, what's this about? And usually I don't, not because I hate ad revenue, but because so many of your direct contributions have let me do this show without ads. I do get contacted on a fairly regular basis to do ads on the show, and I choose not to. I've always said I would be happy to, though, if they were on topic or kind of funny. You know, a rum company, absolutely. Eye patch manufacturers or parrot salesmen, I would do those ads. And a prosthetics company, I would be happy to do ads for peg legs and hook hands, but I don't get those requests. However, Washington's War, 1779, is different. First of all, it's history. Good, early modern history written by a real historian published by University Press Audiobooks. Secondly, they just released an audiobook version, currently available on Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. And what dashing podcast host do you suspect read that audiobook with impeccable narration? If you guessed me, you would be right. I got to do an audiobook, a real audiobook by a real historian published by a real publishing house. If you've got an Audible account, 
then I know you get that credit every month, so why not spend it on Washington's War, 1779? And if you don't have an Audible account, good news, you can get one for free. You can even use a promo code from any of your other favorite podcasts. We no longer have one with Audible, but a lot of great history podcasts do. You can get one for free by supporting that podcaster and then a copy of Washington's War to support me also for free. So check out Washington's War, 1779, by Benjamin Lee Huggins. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. We left off last time with William Kidd's arrival in London, alongside his brother-in-law Samuel Bradley. William Kidd arrived with a letter of recommendation in hand from New York's Attorney General and a dream. William Kidd wanted to be a captain in the Royal Navy. Now, I found an interesting soundbite about that fact, let me dig it out of the archive. It goes something like this. He wanted to be a captain in the Royal Navy. Now I want to be clear here. I'm not going to mince any words. This was insane. Wise words from a wise man. Today we're going to be following William Kidd through the streets and alleys of London as he begins his search for a job that he was woefully unqualified for. This is episode 225, A Litter of Squib Rhinoceroses. Now, I know that it kind of sounds like I'm setting up a gotcha moment here. Like, you know, William Kidd had zero chance of becoming a captain in the Royal Navy, but gotcha, he got the job. Well... Let's nip that right in the bud. William Kidd is not going to get that job. He was never going to get that job. In his book, The Pirate Hunter, author Richard Zacks writes, quote, that he would be made captain of even the HMS Codpiece, a worm-ridden, sixth-rate, perpetually in dry dock, was ludicrous. End quote. William Kidd really should not have gotten the job either. He wasn't made for a captaincy in the Royal Navy. Now, that could also be said of a bunch of other men who did wind up in a captain's hat. It was a political posting as much as it was military. You needed good connections and a good reputation, and probably family members who were well known at court. But William Kidd didn't have any of those things. There was no good political reason to make him a captain. Now, of course, that reality of political postings was less the reality in England after the Glorious Revolution. The last two Stuart kings, Charles II especially, but James was guilty as well, they really did run their court a lot like Versailles. The charming, well-dressed men who could turn a phrase, men who knew a lot more about wine than they did wind, well, they were more likely to get a Royal Navy job than any of the grizzled old sea dogs who actually 
knew their business. Now, this wasn't universal, of course. There were some amazing sea captains in England during their reigns, but it was all too common in the early Royal Navy. William of Orange, William III, did not fall prey to those traps as much. He did, but he was better about getting people who were actually qualified for the job in the job. But I have to be careful here, because... I like William III, as much as I can be said to like any monarch, which really isn't much, but William is a likable guy. You wouldn't, you know, call him a democratic republican by any means, but he was Dutch, and the Netherlands were way ahead of the curve in terms of democratic representative politics. William was happy to work with the parliament, and, I mean, he just wasn't an absolute monarch. And in 1695, that makes him stand out among the crowned heads of Europe. Plus, William was just kind of a regular guy. He was a big fan of gin, which, you know, again, he was Dutch, and that's where gin comes from. But the royals actually barred brandy from their court, partly because it was French and they weren't about that, but also because they just liked gin cocktails. He was an avid chess player, even though he was really bad at it. They said he was too aggressive. William was also an aggressive general, but he was a lot better at that than chess. He was a hands-on commander-in-chief. When there was a campaign, William III was in the field. He lived at camp. He rode out with his men to meet the enemy in battle. You know, Charles II was not riding out with his armies. James did actually spend time on board naval ships. He spent time in battle, but Charles didn't, and once he was king, James wasn't riding out in battle either. William III was tough. He was a soldier. He was a real man's man. And there's a little bit of double entendre there. There's a good chance, although nobody can say for sure, that William III was gay. Of course, he denied it when he was accused of homosexuality, as did the handsome young men he was accused of having relations with. In his own defense in 1697, William III said, It seems to me very extraordinary that it should be impossible to have esteem and regard for a young man without it being criminal. End quote. This was in response to an accusation that he was promoting one of the handsome young men in his court because they were lovers. And a bunch of older biographers and older histories do play this off in a pro-William way as just an older man taking a paternal interest in the upstanding young men of his court, promoting those with real promise, and that could be true, and maybe that's all it was. But these are also from historians working from times and places under the assumption that homosexuality was a sin and bad and wrong. Modern historians tend to accept the possibility that William was gay and maybe kind of corrupt, promoting his lovers instead of those who were better situated for the job. And we may never really know, but if William were gay, it's kind of funny when you take all of the traditional stereotypes into account. You know, King Louis of France and King Charles were both well-dressed fops. They wore makeup and wigs and those silk culotte knee breeches. They were 
literally limp-wristed. They carried around fans and parasols. But at the same time, they had a ton of wives and mistresses and one-night stands with comely maids and who knows how many illegitimate children. Meanwhile, King William wore armor, carried a sword that he knew how to use. He was a, a straight shooter, the kind of guy that looked you in the eye, and he didn't have any mistresses at all, but he very likely had several male lovers. It's fascinating that all of the stereotypical effeminacy that people sometimes associate with homosexuality is turned on its head, here at the highest halls of power, but also, so often, in the world of the pirates. Thing is, though, for King William, most people really didn't care. William was a good king, and he was a good general. The people who accused him were, one and all, Jacobites, supporters of James Stuart. They were going to use anything that they could against the king that they saw as a usurper. Now, I did tell you last time that William III was going to meet William Kidd. That didn't actually happen. It makes a good sound bite, but the king was in the Netherlands. William Kidd was in London. The two men were not in the same place at the same time. But there was an intermediary between the two. The first Earl of Belmont, who we introduced last time, the newly appointed governor of Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Before we get to that, though, William Kidd was in London, specifically in a neighborhood called Wapping. In The Pirate Hunter, Richard Zacks writes, quote, William Kidd and Samuel Bradley stayed in Wapping with distant relatives of the Bradley family a Mrs. Sarah Hawkins, and her husband, Matthew, a butcher. Wapping was no Tony address. It was London's terra firma for the nautical cast. Sailors, during their brief shore stay, bunked in this warren of rumble-down buildings. Often, a parish church reveals a district's relative wealth. The meanest church in all London was St. John's Wapping, built in 1617. According to William Maitland's History and Survey of London, he said the church, and he's quoting Maitland here now, might be taken for a lengthened chimney, a gloomy brick box with low windows crosshatched by thick bars. End quote. The Pirate Hunter is an excellent book, by the way. You should all go pick it up and then not read it because... Of all the texts I have on William Kidd, and I have a lot, this is the most exhaustive and well-written. He really pieces the narrative of Kidd's life together from a bunch of really fragmentary sources from all over the world. It's amazing work. I'm relying on it a lot, especially for the flavor he gives on not just the characters, but the locations. His descriptions are excellent, especially of colonial New York and then London. Wapping in particular, a filthy, grungy corner of town filled with all the scum of nautical life. You know, sailors that were on shore searching out cheap women and cheaper rum and tobacco cut with anything the storekeep had on hand, best not to ask. 
The gambling houses there to cut holes in anyone's purse and collect anything that the kill devil houses and brothels didn't already get their hands on. It was all smoke and disease and filth and money, but you had to know where to look. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Whopping sounds like a pirate haven, but it wasn't. This is, after all, London. Pirates were not safe there, but they definitely spent time and money in the neighborhood, just under different aliases. Zax goes on to quote another chronicler as having described the neighborhood and the sailors who roved her streets, quote, in search of land debaucheries as such wild, staring, uncouth animals that a litter of squab rhinoceroses dressed up in human apparel could not have made a more ungainly appearance. End quote. For anyone as unfamiliar with the term as I was, squab is an old-fashioned English term for a couch, or maybe a stubby, fatty pigeon eaten by the poor. It was also used to describe people and objects as short and stout. So the imagery here is a few hundred short, Stout, drunk rhinos roving the streets of London in search of prostitutes and wine and a fight. And because I am ever pedantic at heart, I looked something up. You know how different groups of animals have different names in their group form? A flock of owls would be called a parliament of owls, for example, or crows be a murder of crows. Well, a group of rhinoceroses is properly called a crash, so that quote should read, a crash of squab rhinoceroses, which I think is better. Now, we don't know exactly how Kidd and Bradley passed most of their days, but I don't imagine it was as upstanding members of the community regularly attending church. We do know that shortly after arriving, Kidd did get granted a meeting with the Secretary of War, William Blaithwaite, but when he arrived, Blaithwaite wasn't there. He was in the Netherlands with the king. Instead, William Kidd met with the secretary's secretary. Basically, he dropped off his letter of recommendation and got a we'll get back to you in return. At which point, he continued to try to make inroads, but really, Kidd and Bradley were just left kind of kicking their heels in London. And then, a miracle. While walking down the street in early August, probably 
just to, you know, get a meat pie and a tot of gin, William Kidd ran into two men from home. Both were New York merchants who were staying for a while in London. They'd made their way to Wapping for a bit of... You know, it's best not to ask why someone was visiting Wapping. What's more, though, they told William Kidd that there was another New York merchant in town. This time, someone out of their league, a man of real wealth and influence and power. His name was Richard Livingston. And that's a name that you may have heard before, or at the very least might spark a little bit of something in the back of your mind. The Livingston family is important. One of this guy's descendants was a founding father of the United States. He signed the Declaration of Independence. He was at the Constitutional Convention. The Livingston family has ties and connections to the Stuyvesant family and the Schuyler clan. The Clintons, the Bush family, the Roosevelts. I mean, they are American nobility in as much as we have it. This Richard Livingston, called the Elder, is the family's founding patriarch in America. He sat in the Trinity Church alongside Governor Fletcher and way in front of William Kidd. He had fingers and money in every pie in town. It's possible he was invested in the illicit trading post set up by Adam Baldridge on Madagascar. It was the hottest ticket in town, but then again, maybe not, and I suspect not. I think he was here in London to blow the whistle. Big events are happening behind the scenes, and it's hard to get a read on exactly what happened when. But a lot of questions were getting asked by important people about Governor Benjamin Fletcher and his connections to pirates. After all, at this moment, pirates were big news in England. Here in August, Henry Every had yet to capture the Ganja Dao, but he was being talked about. He'd stolen the Charles II, gone off to be a pirate, and that ballad was still being sung on street corners everywhere. I guarantee you, without a doubt, that some of the crew members that William Kidd brought on board the Antigua with him had listened to that song. You know, these are a bunch of colonial sailors spending a couple of months in the big city here, enjoying all of the cheap gin and the women that their paltry pay could buy. In one or more of the brothels they visited, there was almost certainly a scandalously scantily clad woman standing on a table showing a lot of leg and singing about pirates. Come all you brave boys whose courage is bold, a little bit tantalizing, but also an invitation to piracy. Nothing ominous there at all. And all the hubbub about pirates in London is probably why Richard Livingston invited William Kidd to join him on a leisurely cruise. The following Saturday... Livingston, Kidd, and those two other New York merchants, Philip French and Giles Shelley, all set out for a day-long trip. They took a boat to Chelsea, where the four men shared good drinks and fine food and chatted away the afternoon. Richard Zacks describes some of their conversation as French and Shelley trying to let William Kidd down gently. Oh, you want a job with the Navy? You know, tough odds, that. But how about this merchant voyage to Amsterdam? 
good money, and they need a ship and a captain, or maybe this to Jamaica, or really anything else that William Kidd was qualified to do. French and Shelley tried to talk him into taking one of those other jobs, but Richard Livingston, on the other hand... Well, first of all, Richard Zacks goes into this whole story about his recent voyage to London. Now, I don't want to take the time to get into all of it, but I understand why Zacks did. His ship got hit by a storm. They lost their mainmast, their rudder, they had a big hole in the hull. They were drifting and sinking out in the Atlantic for weeks. Men on board began to starve to death, and Livingston... Livingston had a hidden store of food that he kept to himself and guarded. He killed men for trying to take his food. And all the while he's talking about his faith in God and his prayers for salvation, but, you know, it's not too Christ-like to let your fellow man starve to death to kill them for trying to get enough to eat while you eat well. Richard Zacks characterizes him as a spider, sneaky and quiet and operating from the shadows. And in my opinion, my own characterization, I suppose, I think he was a spider, attempting to take down Governor Fletcher back in New York. We do know that they were enemies, but you know, polite, rich people enemies. They would attend dinner parties and church together, but they'd have biting remarks and work behind the scenes to take one another down. And here was William Kidd, one of Benjamin Fletcher's friends and allies and married to the richest woman in New York, and Kidd was caught in Livingston's web. All afternoon long, Livingston kept guiding the conversation toward Kidd's time in the West Indies, to his privateering and his experience dealing with pirates. What exactly did he know about pirate hideouts and pirate tactics, about how they operate? Now, I imagine most of us, put in Kidd's position, would act similarly, Here's a powerful guy with influence. You're looking for a job. Kid tried to impress him. He went into detail about everything he knew about pirates, and he knew quite a lot. And Richard Zacks says, and I love this, he starts a new paragraph, which reads, quote, And Livingston, silent, began to hatch a plan. Now, it's at this point that the facts begin to get really tough to pin down. Livingston was operating very much in the shadows here, like the spider he was. We do know that Livingston took Kidd's application to the new governor of Massachusetts, Lord Bellamont. Livingston visited the Bellamont estate, and again, Richard Zacks, quote, The 41-year-old Livingston stood there in his finest, his long coat, a silk-ruffled collar, lace sleeves and cuffs, silver-buckled shoes, he had donned a long, curled wig that followed La Mode in rising to twin peaks astride a center part. Livingston brought Bellamont Kidd's proposal that he be given a Royal Navy ship and a command, and Livingston added some of his own ideas. Would we not be doing the will of God and the king if we set him to hunting pirates? Specifically, it has come to my attention that a number of dastardly villains are operating out of New York City, my own hometown, right under the nose of our illustrious governor. 
And this is tricky because no one was keeping accurate records of the negotiations that followed. Much of what they talked about was almost certainly illegal. But it seems pretty clear to me that these two men were involved in a conspiracy to take down Benjamin Fletcher. Bellamont was the newly appointed governor of Massachusetts and kind of New Hampshire, both of which are good jobs, but he was deep in debt. If he were going to climb out of that hole, he was going to need to tack on a few hundred more pounds to his yearly salary, and the best place to do that was New York. If those two men could push Fletcher out of office and get Bellamont in there as governor of New York, in addition to his other two governorships, they would both be very well placed to help each other prosper. Now, you may remember that we did mention Livingston once before. In the wake of the governorship of Edmund Andros, during Leisler's Rebellion, when a German immigrant tried to take command of New York, it was Livingston that led all of the best people of New York out of the city, alongside a sizable militia, to a rough little settlement north of the city called Albany. You may also remember that Lord Bellamont led the prosecution of several high-ranking members of Leisler's Rebellion. These two men had worked together before. And I will say this. When Benjamin Fletcher does get pushed out of office, and that's coming more quickly than you might think, his replacement governor, the newly appointed governor of New York, Richard Coote, the first Earl of Belmont, was going to grant Livingston a giant piece of land almost 200,000 acres of prime Hudson River real estate that also encompassed Albany, New York, the town that would soon become the seat of colonial government in New York. And you know, we're just talking about what happened here. We don't know that there was any kind of conspiracy at work, but we do know that they were working together to get Kidd this commission, a commission that would hopefully incriminate Governor Fletcher. And it's kind of hard to blame him here. You know, some of what they were doing may have been legally dubious, but Benjamin Fletcher was actually dealing with pirates and interlopers and breaking a ton of laws. But their first attempt to get Kidd his commission was a complete bust. Bellamont went to Amsterdam to bring a proposal before the Secretary of War, William Blaithwaite, and the King. It was a proposal that William Kidd some well-decorated privateer from the colonies, my liege, would be given a navy ship to hunt down pirates. A noble endeavor, but no, was the answer to the question. That's insane. You may not have noticed here, but we are at war with France. Every navy ship available is needed right here and right now. We're about to grind Louis to dust, you fool. Get out! So Livingston and Bellamont returned to the drawing board. And here, that's where we're going to leave it this week. The conspiracy, if it could even be called such, that is about to erupt in London high society is going to involve many of the highest-ranking members of society. Men who are going to, some of them, fall very, very far, thanks to the later actions of William Kidd. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews or recommended this show, 
You all make it possible. Thank you. If you are looking for a way to help support the show right now, let me recommend once again Washington's War, 1779. Those of you with an interest in revolutionary politics or revolutionary warfare, those of you who just like daring nighttime raids against overwhelming odds and forts filled with enemy soldiers, or those who just like listening to my voice as they go to sleep, Washington's War, 1779 by Benjamin Lee Huggins. I'll leave you today with the retail audio sample that's currently up on Audible, so you can get a feel for the flavor of the book and my narration. If it's something you think you would be interested in, please go pick up a copy. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Girard advised Congress of Destin's intention to return to the North American coast. On May 9, he sent a letter to Congress. He explained that at their request he had, some time ago, written to the Admiral to request that he come to the aid of Georgia. Girard had proposed a plan for joint operations in Georgia, but Congress had gone silent on the project. But the answer of that Vice Admiral having reached me, I do not think, sir, that the interest of the Alliance, and those of these states, will permit me to conduct myself according to the presumed negative resolution of Congress, he declared. He accompanied his letter with an annexed memoir, setting out the French position and expectations. In it, he advised Congress that Destin had answered him, that the superiority of the enemy had not hitherto permitted him to leave those shores, the West Indies, but that, in consequence of His Majesty's intentions, which are to grant to the United States, his allies, all the succor compatible with the security of his own possessions and the general position of affairs, he proposes immediately to come to the southern coast of the states and labor for the deliverance of Georgia and the preservation of South Carolina. From there, His Majesty's squadron would sail to the mouth of the Delaware, and their ulterior operations will depend upon the concert, which shall be taken between the Congress and the commander of His Majesty's forces, and shall be calculated for the greatest advantage of the United States. Girard, in a strong hint that France expected the United States to conduct important, and successful joint operations with Destin's fleet, advised Congress that he desired that body would inform him, from time to time, of what shall have been done in the premises, particularly as the minister must answer personally for measures the ill success of which would expose to the greatest misfortunes a force which the king has destined for the direct and immediate succor of the United States." With this strong notice that the French expected joint operations, Congress acted swiftly. It granted Washington sweeping powers over strategy and operations. On May 10, it passed an act declaring that Washington should consider himself at liberty so to direct the military operations of these states as shall appear to him most expedient. On the same day, John Jay, President of Congress, sent Washington a copy of the Act and informed him that Congress confide fully in Your Excellency's prudence and abilities. He assured Washington that they wished him to place reliance on his own judgment and that he need only communicate his plans as he judged necessary or expedient. Assured of Washington's grasp of strategy, after his meetings with the Committee of Conference and his meeting with Girard, 
and even more confident in Washington's judgment to plan and execute operations with the French, Congress gave him wide discretion. In stark contrast with attitudes held as recently as the winter of 1778, that body thus vested Washington with complete power to plan and conduct combined operations with the French. There were no more rivals. He now had complete authority over military operations on the continent. This great confidence in his generalship reflected his leadership at the Battle of Monmouth, his performance in the campaign of 1778, the first with the French, and the strategic planning and administrative abilities the commander-in-chief had demonstrated in his extended discussions with Congress the previous winter. Such unyielding trust and confidence in him by Congress firmed up Washington's position as commander-in-chief and certainly must have increased his confidence in preparing for joint operations with the French. Despite these broad powers, the American commander had to keep his strategic goals very limited. With Girard having committed only to a limited, contingent campaign at New York, and no certain guarantee that d'Estaing would come to cooperate with him, Washington moved to carry out the plan of campaign he had formulated earlier in the year with Congress. Launching an expedition against the Iroquois in western New York to relieve the frontiers while keeping the main army entirely on the defensive and focusing on recruiting its regiments to full strength. Despite his limited means and myriad difficulties, Washington wanted to push the war as vigorously as possible. Tonight 